Before I bring this guest on, I want to tell you something uh, briefly. Some of you may be familiar with Van Jones. You see him on CNN. I've met him at the airport because we both go uh, coast to coast. And uh, because I'm on Fox as a liberal Democrat, um, he is on CNN, has his own show now on CNN, used to work in the Obama White House. You guys know all of that. But what you might not know is about Cut 50. And that's why Jessica Jackson Sloan is joining us today. She's national director and co-founder of Cut 50. They're a bipartisan effort to cut the U.S. prison population in half. And I think a lot of you have seen the numbers uh, prior to and since uh, the election about why that is such an important thing and why the numbers are so high in the United States, disproportionate to other countries. Jessica is one of the leading voices bringing people from both sides of the aisle together to find a bipartisan route to fixing our criminal justice system. I think we can all agree left or right, it's broken. Jessica is a human rights attorney. She began her career representing California death row inmates in the state where I live in their appeals, and she started her work on this important issue after her first marriage was destroyed when her then-husband was sentenced to prison for a non-violent offense. That prompted her to go to law school and seek to reform the criminal justice system. When you say success is the best revenge, this woman is an example of that. Jessica was elected to the Mill Valley, love Mill Valley, California City Council in 2013. She became mayor in December 2016, one of my favorite places uh, in uh, the country, not just in Cali. Jessica Jackson Sloan, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and I'm super excited to hear how much you love Mill Valley. I think it's pretty great there myself. Yes, I love Mill Valley. Um, I love what you guys are trying to do at Cut 50. Um, You know, with what I do, I debate, uh, just like Van does, uh, and and just like, you know, you talk about a lot of issues, but this is one that is near and dear um, to my heart because this is something that is broken and it can be fixed, and it's long overdue. Um, So first of all, um, talk to us about the National Day of Empathy, Um, you know, what it is supposed to do, uh, because we have a lot of communities impacted um, by this broken criminal justice system, and certainly just by the number, sheer number of people in prison, especially those who are nonviolent offenders. Yes, so absolutely. Uh, The Day of Empathy was March 1st this year. Uh, It was a time for reaching out to legislators across the country to talk about empathy. Uh, Our message was crime hurts, justice should heal. And in order to demonstrate that, we brought directly impacted people who have been hurt by the criminal justice system up to meet with state legislators in 35 different states. We worked with over 50 organizations, um, and we had a huge online participation as well on social media of people sharing their stories, and whether they were victims of a crime or uh, had a loved one who had been hurt by a crime, they were law enforcement, if they had personally been incarcerated or had a family member who was incarcerated. Uh, we had many different groups of folks coming out and talking about the ways that they feel the current system is broken. You know, there there is a fabric, if you think of, you know, threads being woven together. Um, communities throughout this country are impacted by crime, violence, addiction, and incarceration, and mm-hmm. oftentimes they, they go hands, hand in hand. Oftentimes they tear families apart. You have personal experience with that. 
you know, there's a push, especially after the election of Donald Trump and the rhetoric prior to his being elected, you know, uh, you know, that he's going to keep, you know, America safe and that, you know, we're going to be safer with him at the helm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't, you know, you know, feel safe, perhaps uh, on a national level. But I think the overwhelming majority of people out there would say, well, I don't really have a problem with somebody who's nonviolent living next to me. And do we really want what the result is, and, and, you know, with mandatory minimums and throwing so many nonviolent offenders, not only in prison with violent offenders, but just looking at the the, the, the cost and then the cost to human life and the overcrowding and, and, and so many negative, um, you know, aspects and ramifications of making these poor choices that contribute to our crumbling criminal justice system. Right. And you bring up a good point. We want to be safe. That's what we all want. We want to be safe in our streets, our communities. We want our kids to be safe. And the current justice system is just not achieving that. In fact, it's making us less safe because it's traumatizing people while they're in the system. And it's providing it's not providing any way for them to successfully reenter. And you bring up this whole nonviolent violence split. The truth is, 90% of the people who are incarcerated, which today is around 2.2 million people in this country, 90% of them, whether they committed a violent or nonviolent offense, are coming home. They're going to be coming home into your neighborhoods. And the fact is, we're not setting them up for success. In fact, our current system is failing 74% of the time to set people up to be successful once they come home. So then they're committing more crimes and creating more victims and going back to prison. But, of course, that committing more crimes piece is essential because that makes our streets less safe. So if safety is our goal or the president's goal, we need to start looking at models that work and that are successful for helping people turn their lives around after, after a crime has been committed. Speaking of the president, President Trump and the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, their their focus seems to be on stiffening penalties, uh, bolstering enforcement uh, efforts, uh, you know, stop and frisk, uh, they talk about. Um, advocates uh, called for a justice system that prioritizes treatment and rehabilitation over incarceration. Uh, Jessica, can you speak to us why treatment and rehabilitation um, are, are better and keep us safer overall, better for our communities, state by state, um, rather than just throwing people in prison and whether they stay there, you know, for a, a long time or not, you, you know, you alluded to the recidivism rate, you know, I, you know, I think sending people to prison, you know, makes them a harder criminal than they went in. Absolutely. You are a hundred percent right on that assumption. And what we know is that the current system, the one-size-fits-all, throw everybody in a box no matter what, why they committed the crime they committed or what kind of crime they committed, isn't working. What we need to do is actually address the underlying cause of the crime. So when you talk about models that do work, you're looking at, for example, drug courts, a court that will actually address the underlying the crime, the reason the crime was committed. So it might not even be a crime related to possession of drugs or or usage of drugs. It might be another crime, um, such as a theft, to then sell the product and, and make money and buy drugs. But the drug courts actually get at the reason a person is committing the crime, and they address it. They help them get off drugs, and they help them uh, utilize other services that exist so that they can actually become a productive citizen and turn their life around. Uh, no, no question. Um, right now, 
I have a problem with how profitable the private prison industry is. Senator Sanders has spoken to this, and there are some, even our own president, uh, there there are those that are saying um, that uh, profit from this business of uh, privatized prisons. Can you speak to that? Yeah. No, and, and let me just... You know, I agree with you. Privatized prisons are a huge problem, um, and the profiting of, of incarcerating people is a huge issue. But it's not just private prisons. It's all prisons. Uh, what we see is we have an incarceration industry. This country is spending $80 billion a year on incarceration. So there are people who are making a lot of money off of prison beds being filled or jail beds being filled. And because of that and because of the powerful lobby that they have, uh, they're lobbying for harsher penalties and less rehabilitation, less money to actually go into rehabilitating people and making all of us safer because they will make money if people are committing crimes and returning to prisons. Um, but when I say, you know, this isn't just private prisons, look at companies like Aramark or nice. JPay or Global Telling. They're making money off our state prisons every single day, um, and they're, they're, that also needs to be addressed. You guys organized at the beginning of the month that we spoke of a few minutes ago, the National Day of Empathy. Um, you had cut uh, 50. You had three powerful videos that I saw when I was looking at what you guys were doing and my producer reached out to you. Um, they were men that were incarcerated in the San Quentin prison uh, here, state prison here in Cali. Um, at dayofempathy.org, can people still view those videos? Because they're very powerful and I want people to see those. Are they still up and available and ready for people to view? Yeah, and, and actually what I would say is go visit our website, uh, cut50.org. Uh, you're going to see those three videos up there under the San Quentin Media Project tab, and you'll also see more videos coming up there. We're very, very fortunate to be able to work with the guys inside who are just so incredibly talented. I mean, you saw those videos. They wrote the content. They produced them. They filmed them. Uh, I showed one person on Day of Empathy those videos, and he's an attorney who's been in and out of prisons for the last 30 years. And he was shocked those had been filmed inside of a prison because they're just so incredibly well done. Uh, so, you know, I think not only does that show just what an incredible um, team we have of, of guys inside over there, but it also speaks to the fact that we're just throwing away so much talent and so much genius by just locking people up and not investing in them and helping them come out and do something more productive. And speaking of investing, one of the things as a parent uh, that turns my stomach is uh, when we sentence children, children as young as uh, 16, God, even younger, we've seen in some mm -hmm. cases, um, mm -hmm. as adults. Uh, I know in New York City, there is legislation that is pending uh, called Raise the Age. And I, mm -hmm. I know this is something that a lot of people out there, especially in the left, but it doesn't have to just be left or rightist, but there are parents out there, you know, you just look at a child and say, how can you, uh, you know, lock them up forever? And how can you treat them as an adult when they don't have the mind of an adult they are still a child this is one of the other areas or one of the many areas and i say that because it's not just about cost it's not just about overcrowding it's not just about recidivism it's not just about mandatory minimums and nonviolent offenders this is another way the criminal system justice system is broken and these are another segment of the population um, of, of prisons that need not be there if we ended adult sentencing uh, for children 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up the New York Raise the Age because uh, we actually partnered with Organizing for Justice, uh, one of the organizations who's been pushing for Raise the Age. Uh, what I found during the Day of Empathy kind of organization piece of the day, as we were reaching out to all these organizations across the country, and we really were focused on, on bringing together organizations that are doing this work in this space but don't otherwise have a really great support system that aren't part of any larger network. Um, so as we were talking to them across the country, I was shocked at how many of the different events uh, were based on juveniles. We had an art show in one state of art made by juveniles who had been sentenced to life. Um, here in California, we were rallying around a couple bills that Cut 50 is actually working on that impact juveniles, both ending juvenile life without possibility of parole and requiring attorneys to be present when a child is Mirandized and given their Miranda warnings. Um, down in Mississippi, we had over 400 social workers come out and talk about uh, the impact on juveniles and their families when they're incarcerated. I mean, just all across the country, Connecticut, we had the governor come out and, and talk about um, legislation he wants to see passed around raising the age there in Connecticut, actually up to 21 for the juvenile uh, justice courts, not even, you know, capping it at 18. So juveniles were definitely a predominant uh, part of the conversation on Day of Empathy. And I, I think part of that is because we're supposed to be a, a nation of second chances. And if we're really going to deliver on that, we've got to start with our kids. We've got to start with our youth and investing in rehabilitating them as opposed to just ruining their lives in the justice system. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Very interesting conversation. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are as well. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue to talk with Jessica Jackson Sloan, joins us from cut50.org. Uh, check them out, cut50.org on the website. Also check out dayofempathy.org and, you know, look at those videos. Very powerful that we were just speaking of a few moments ago. We're back with Jessica Jackson Sloan. She's national director and co-founder of Cut 50. She also was elected to the Mill Valley City Council, but became mayor in December 2016. More than a pleasure to have her with us. Thank you for holding, and uh, welcome back. Um, we are talking about our broken criminal justice system, and we're also talking about what is happening uh, throughout this country. And when you just look at the stats, it's not just the opinion of me, you, and so many others that the United States locks people up at a higher rate than any other country in the world, that is actually um, a fact. And, it, you know, it, it's not just a fact, it's a stark fact. Um, we have less than 5% of the world's population, yet we have almost 25% of the total world prison population. Um, the numbers keep getting higher. They're higher now than they were 30 or 40 years ago, um, even though crime is at a historic low. So talk to me about two things here. One, what is it about our country and our culture, if you will, that makes us, number one, even though we're less than 5% of the world's population, and two, why are numbers higher for imprisonment um, despite the fact that crime is at historic low in, in so many places? Yeah, so uh, to speak to the first point there, I, I think that, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, what we saw was a real tough-on-crime message. Uh, we had the drug series, the Just Say No uh, drug commercials come out. We had a bunch of tough-on-crime, lock-em-up, uh, anti-drug policies passed. Um, a real campaign 
to crack down on on crime and and really just paint this narrative that anybody who commits any crime, whether it's you know a simple drug offense or worse, um, is not worthy of being in society and needs to be locked up. Uh, we are still battling that very powerful narrative, which unfortunately has made a bit of a comeback here in the last year and a half or so. Now, as somebody who's who's involved in politics myself, um, you know, it's it's easy to run fear-based campaigns, point to an incident, say, don't let this happen to you, I have the solution. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that, um, you know, people in the 80s and 90s didn't know what to do about uh, some of the drug, drug epidemics that were hitting uh, the U.S. so hard, and unfortunately, uh, they decided to run fear-based campaigns as opposed to actually addressing the problem. Um, so I think what, what our biggest task right now is really telling the stories of how these tough-on-crime policies failed and uh, telling the stories of the impact it had on our communities and on you know, our political system as a whole, the fact that we're spending more money on incarceration than education and how that's led to failure in future generations as well. Um, so I think really introducing smart-on-crime policies now that uh, have been piloted. We spoke earlier in the last segment about drug courts and the fact that they have somewhere around a 75% success rate, whereas incarceration system has about a 74% rate of failure. Drug courts instead have a 75% rate of success of getting people off drugs and and ensuring that they don't commit any other crimes. Um, You look at another model that's been extremely successful out there, veterans courts. Uh, We have a lot of folks who are coming home from the war and, as you may imagine, aren't getting all the support they need to do so successfully. Unfortunately, many of them uh, find themselves caught up in the criminal justice system and need help. And luckily, these veterans' courts have, have started springing up around the country. Uh, Cut 50 works closely with Justice for Vets and, and supports everything they're doing to spread these veterans' courts. Um, and what you're seeing there is they have about an 86% rate of success as well, and not just for nonviolent crimes. They, they actually include all crimes um, but are able to address the underlying reason people are committing crimes. You know what? The other thing is I, I think that it, this is not just an impact, like I said, of cost, and it's not even just an impact of the prisoner, um, but the victims um, mm-hmm. of um, those especially who are violent offenders the families of people who are incarcerated and, you know, people who were formerly incarcerated. One of the things that struck me so much in that movie, Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. um, and it's a, it's a real life problem, is there's a society in prison. And when somebody is released, and, and you touched upon this, there's really no transition between that life and real life. And, 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 and that, that is very difficult. Uh, briefly, if you could speak to that, and just what you want to say in closing here this afternoon. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to say, you know, it's, it's important to bring in the victim's voice. And, and what we're finding, and, and just to tie this back to our day of empathy, you know, here in California, I think we had 17 murder victims' families. We had crime survivors, all of them participating, talking about how broken the system is and how it actually perpetuates the cycle of violence. Uh, just some very, very powerful testimony coming out of that day to the legislators from mothers who literally visit one son graveside and one son in prison and are talking about, you know, what they're seeing in the system and the impact it's having on them, both as victims and families of, of incarceration.
celebrated. Yeah, absolutely. Jessica um, Jackson Sloan, thank you for being with us. She is co-founder of Cut 50, also their uh, national director. She is the mayor of Mill Valley, and you can follow her on Twitter at Jessie Michelle. That's J-E-S-S-Y-M-I-C-H-E-L-E. And check out the websites cut50.org and dayofempathy.org. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 